Total Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. On today's show, we're building a Premier League team of US players. We're asking about US academies for European teams. What's up with that? And we're looking at the countries that produce the best coaches. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, your friend of mine, cheeky smile on his face as always, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, my friend. I always love listener questions episodes. I'm excited to try to make sense of some of these questions and try to give logical answers try being the operative word there try you're not just trying you're you're achieving your goals taylor surely that's that's what we're all about right 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 right. yeah good (laughs) good good joining us taylor we have mr joe lowry still in the boot shake nation hello joe yes i'm in the boot baby um things are good Food is still good. Had great food today. Inhaled a lot of secondhand smoke, as we talked about earlier this week. What more What more could you ask for? It, That's not really how I wanted to end that thought, but, you know, here we are. It would be weird if the food suddenly took a turn. Like, uh, one week in, Joe's like, you know what, guys? Actually, food's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> no, thankfully wow. that has not happened yet. That's good. St- That's good. Uh, still in the shin of the boot, Joe, in, in Roma? Yes, although we do oh, have right. now a day trip scheduled for Florence. So I hope that makes Grim oh. smile um, on his Spanish vacation, which every time Grim sends us a picture of his vacation, he is working. Have you guys noticed this? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the two or three pictures I've seen on his computer screen is something work-related. Graham, if you are listening yeah. to this, stop. That's all I have. I don't think he can. I think he's like, you know those sharks where if they stop, they die? Like I think he's like that. If he stops <laughs> writing about soccer for one day or sending uh, features to the Guardian, then he, uh, he, he, he flails. <laughs> he really does have like... It feels like the equivalent of like the person who has to go to the gym, even on their off day, they're still going to the gym just to do like a light workout. That's Graham. He has to write about soccer, even if he's not submitting it. He just has to write think pieces and articles to make sure that he keeps those muscles toned. Indeed. Uh, well, we love you, Graham. We hope you come back refreshed from all the work you're still doing on your vacation. <laughs> uh, we look forward to that. Uh, TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you want to send us a question, dear listener, as many of our dear listeners have done for this episode and many more. Also, Patreon.com slash Show if you'd like to see the... Um, palace that graham is staying in for his vacation at the moment it looks very nice indeed you can check that out and much much more bonus episodes and audio in video and all the fun things including access to our discord where all the cool kids are hanging out let's get to our listener questions shall we let's start with peter shark do 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 he says gates bezos and musk come together to buy a mid-table premier league club <laughs> and buy the entire usmnt player pool and hire greg berhalter as manager for the season leading up to the world cup how much does this improve the usmnt's chances and do they make the semi-finals of the world cup with this approach joe i think my first question is do they survive in the premier league i think the answer is yes but i don't think they are getting into the european spots let's put it that way i my my question this is where i thought you were going why would that trio buy a mid-table club? Like, yeah. why are they going to do a, Like, why are they going to purchase West Ham when they could have any of the elite teams in the Premier League? That part doesn't quite make sense to me, but I do love this question nonetheless. My answer, my, my quick and dirty answer is, I think the U.S. improves, but it won't be enough to get them into the semifinals in all likelihood. I, I've got maybe like a 5% improvement. It's 
don't know, it's kind of a fool's errand to put a number on it, but I think they get better. I just don't think it's going to move the needle quite far enough to actually change their World Cup fate. Do you think it would make it feel like playoffs? Like a World Cup would feel like playoffs at the end of the season and the players would all be a bit tired and like a bit jaded by the time they got to the World Cup. Well, maybe that's actually the secret is America loves playoffs. As we know, the MLS Next Pro playoffs have been in the news for Benny Failhaber dropping bombs on a Zoom call as they pick their random playoff opponents, which is awesome. We love playoffs in America. We can't get enough. Maybe, Ryan, this is how we get there. So I'll unpack my answer a little bit more. And then, Taylor, I really would. I do want to hear your perspective I think there's two parts of this. The first part that I'm I'm sure Peter is not getting at here, but I am always thinking about, is that getting to the semifinal round of what is essentially now a 32-team knockout tournament, not even factoring the group stage, 48 teams down to 32 teams in the knockout round, it's just really hard. Like, it's really, really hard to do that. We're going to see plenty of upsets because soccer is such a low-scoring game. It lends itself to craziness, right? I think back to the last World Cup. We could get a Saudi Arabia versus Argentina in the knockout rounds now instead of in the group stages or whatever the U.S. equivalent of that's going to be. So the the tournaments are weird part of all this is something that I think about, and I'm not sure the billionaire plan really helped solve that. But the second thing that this plan doesn't solve is that even if Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams and Gio Reyna and Balogun and Polis, all these guys, even if they're all playing together every day, they are still not Argentina or Brazil or France or England or whoever, right? They're still not going to magically turn into global superstars just by playing together. So I think it helps, right? Like that's what I led with. I think it helps a little bit. I think you would see a bump. And I am curious about, you know, maybe Greg Berhalter looks like a much better coach coaching at club level, which is what would happen here than he does for the national team. But I just don't think it's going to be a big enough boost to really change the U.S.'s fate. Taylor, how does this move the needle for the US at the World Cup, do you think? It's a very interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Not not been done before, I believe, in, in soccer history. Well, kind of has. Oh? Weirdly, there is precedent. Before the 1994 World Cup, where basically uh, the US knew that they were going to be launching Major oh, yeah. League Soccer. They wanted to have everybody available, so they bring most of the pool back, and they basically play for the US as a league, which is why, if you look at like the caps of those guys from that generation, they all are over 100. <laughs> Yeah, because they were just playing friendlies and friendlies and friendlies. They're playing in Copa America. They're playing all over the place. And it did make them better. I mean, you look at what they did in 94 and they get out of that group. Uh, maybe a little bit of, of help in the Columbia game is a way to put that one. Uh, but I think you do get a level of consistency, a level of chemistry that allows you to play better soccer. Uh, I think some issues would arise, first of all, in the premise of the question, if Elon Musk is buying a club, we assume he's going to go full Vincent Tan and change the name to X and change the color scheme drastically. I think that would probably hurt the team overall. I do also feel like if you had this team exist, which I don't think you could, but if you did, uh, they're probably going to have a target on their backs, right? If you're owned by these three and it's all Americans playing in the Premier League, I feel like every Premier League opponent is going to up their game just a little bit when taking on the United States. So I think that would probably hurt them a little bit in the league. But I do think you would get uh, more consistency from the group. I, I basically agree exactly with Joe that once you start getting into those later rounds, though, it's just it's harder for me to say with confidence that that would be the difference maker. I think it would make them better against top tier opposition, because if you're playing Man City, Liverpool, you've got to learn how to deal with with different teams who do different things in the attack. And how do you handle those variations? I think it probably makes them more adept or more capable of doing so. But I don't know if that puts them in a position where they can then 
have more consistent results, more consistent wins. I think it does make them better. I think it makes them much more likely to make a run. I just don't really know how far that run is, which is depressing and also motivating at the same time, because you like to think that if you had that level of time together, they would be able to win the World Cup. In reality, I think there is just that, like, if if everybody is playing at the same level for the United States right now, I don't know if that level is enough to kind of put them over the top. I think you do need those next level difference makers to keep everybody on their toes and to have sort of more demanding training sessions and to pull everybody up to that next level. So I think there's a chance that that could happen down the road right now. I think it probably puts them easily into the quarters and and maybe getting out of it from there. But I I think it wouldn't be a full difference maker. Yeah, I I still wouldn't even go as far to say easily in the quarters or anything along those lines. But Taylor, we do agree that it would make the U.S. better, just not better enough Mm -hmm. for them to be an obvious like top four team in the world, or I would say probably not even a top eight team in the world. Where my answer might shift to this question, and just because Ryan's here, I'll pick England. I think if you pick a top tier contender, like England mm-hmm. are contenders for every single competition they're in, Argentina, Brazil, the, the whole list that I read off earlier and a few others probably that I didn't mention. If you substitute one of those countries in for the US in this question, I think my answer is different. I think if England got to play together or Spain We kind of got a glimpse of that with Spain during their heyday with basically everybody with Barcelona or Madrid. If you got Germany all playing together, we've seen bits and pieces of that at Super Clubs. If you get these guys playing together and they are legitimate contenders before you do that, I think if they played a season of club soccer together, and that's all that's in the question, right? The season leading up to the World Cup. I think 34 Premier League games or whatever it is, pick your league. I think that significantly increases a favorite's chances of winning that I think it does that more than it does for the U.S., who's probably in that second tier of teams in global soccer. All right, Joe. Uh, let me tweak the question. Instead of Berhalter, it's Pep Guardiola. Does that change your decision? <laughs> no. I mean, it, it probably adds another percentage point or two on there, but it's still it's still somebody coaching Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams instead of coaching Xavi and Iniesta, right? So yeah, yeah it, I mean, doesn't, that, it doesn't move the needle that much for me. And and it's not being disrespectful to the U.S. player pool. It's just, it is the reality that Pep isn't going out and looking for like, Tyler Adams is the guy I need to make my <laughs> midfield better. We have yet to see Pep succeed with a team that are sort of mid-tier and he doesn't have the resources. It's not a criticism. It's just a factual statement. He's managed Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Manchester City, all of whom are able to buy the players that they want to buy or have the players that they need when they need them. So... I think for the U.S., he would be very demanding and it would probably be much more structured, much more regimented. I think players would probably work a little bit harder under Pep. But again, I don't know if it makes that full difference. What this question made me then wonder if we went the other way, would a mid-table Premier League club, would West Ham, if you put West Ham United at the end of a season into the World Cup, would West Ham be good enough to win the World Cup? And if so, what They won it in 1966, Taylor, if you ask any of their fans. See, there you go. Uh, So that's (laughs) certainly a recent precedent to go with. Uh, But if, like, and then I wondered, like, what's the level, if you would say yes to West Ham, then what's the furthest you can go down for it with a team? Like, what's the level you can go to for a team that would still win it uh, even if they're not, like, Manchester City or Liverpool? Uh, So that that was, I love this question because it made me think, about like nine different things at once, uh, which is a good way to start this episode, I think. Mm. It's uh, it's like seventh. It's like Aston Villa zone for me. I think you all think? of those would have a shot up, up yeah. from there upwards. I think, 
I think I think Villa would win the World Cup with mm-hmm. Unai Emery as coach. Yeah. I, I would back them. I'd put money on them to win it. Okay. My head hurts and I'm scared to answer Taylor's question. I hope we're either close <laughs> to a break or to a new question. Yeah, I think West Ham under David Moyes, it's hard to imagine that's what you needed to 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 push you oh. over the line and get you that World Cup win for West Ham. I would love David Moyes to be a World Cup winning coach. That would be amazing, Taylor. I, I mean, England might have a vacancy coming up, my friend. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And why not, Scott? Um, one further question for you, Taylor, on this. Let's say Man United, they're, uh, they, they're, uh, a change we? of ownership comes in, which oh, okay. might be a no, reality. No. Yep. Mm-hmm. Gates, Bezos or Musk, who would you rather have take over Man United and why is it Bill Gates? It's Bill Gates, I, I think. I mean, he wouldn't, uh, but it's Bill Gates only because uh elon musk is is not my favorite person and i i don't think makes smart decisions i think when you buy something like twitter and then change all the branding and the logos and everything that's identifiable and then threaten to charge money for it you kind of show that you're not the best person it's a very todd bully approach to twitter is is what i think elon musk would bring to the premier league uh bezos i don't know i just he just he has too much money uh is basically what it is not that bill gates doesn't uh but i think bill gates is the one i would go with uh even if i feel like because he would just sort of like be hands off to the extent needed he would basically be like i'm gonna put smart people in to do smart decision making and i'll check in with them to make sure that i think they're doing the right thing but i feel like he strikes me as of the three the one who's most likely to put smart people in place to run things in a way that he would agree with, but gives them the freedom to run them successfully. So Bill Gates is the one I would go with. You should sure. that very seriously, that question. Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate that. I, I don't think I can overstate how much I dislike Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> but just, Bezos, just, come on. You know, <laughs> if I need a toilet brush this afternoon, it'll come in a, in a few hours. That's amazing. What, what, what a world he's created for I us. don't know what it is about Jeff Bezos <laughs> that, 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 that bothers me the way it does. But like when he was linked with buying the, uh, the Washington football team, I was okay with it because it wasn't Dan Snyder, but it was definitely, if you asked me which of them I wanted to buy Washington, I would have said Bill Gates as well. There you go. I think, does Bates, Bates, Bates uh, Gates own a uh, piece of the Sounders? Or I think it might be Paul Allen who has some, some of the that, Sounders. Uh, Gates, I feel like, is more the, the charitable side slash the divorce side, I think, these days when it comes to where his money goes. Very nice. Peter Shark, thank you very much for that excellent question to kick off uh, the uh, the episode. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Serginio Dest. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Jordan Crute has been in touch and asks, if Serginio Dest is a defensive liability but an attacking outlet, why is he a fullback and not a winger or a wide midfielder? <laughs> Joe's pumping his fist at this one. He so, is. Joe, why not change up the position he's been training in since he was a small child? I love this question. I, I love this question so much, Jordan. Thank you for asking it. It is a fantastic question, <laughs> as are all of these. I, uh, I'll i go through this in a couple of different ways. To start off, I don't think Serginho Dest is a defensive liability. Uh, I know Matt Doyle tweeted that, you know, 14,000 years ago and Taylor said it the other day. <laughs> I, I think he's a below average defender and I think Doyle and Taylor would probably agree. I think defensive liability, it, it's all subjective, right, on how you want to view that term. It's like world class. It's why we don't tend to say world class a lot because you could throw a dart at a board and pick 18 different definitions of world class and nobody's would align with the person next to them anyway. He's not a great defender, but he's not hes not a travesty in that part of the field either. Dest did play as a winger. Taylor, I don't know if you remember this at all. He played as a winger some for young Ajax back in the day, but he didn't stick there for Ajax or Barca or, or any, any club that he's played for for one major reason in my mind. He doesn't create very much in the final third. We all have this image of Serginho Dest as this saucy, super creative, clever player, and he is those things. But he, he gets forward, but he's much more of a connector than he is a playmaker. So I, I have a couple of stats. They're very simple, very straightforward. Last year, in the, in the last 365 days, I should say, Dest is in just the 47th percentile among fullbacks in Europe's biggest leagues and expected assisted goals. Translation, basically chance creation. In the last year, he rates a little higher in terms of expected goals, 75th percentile based on non-penalty expected goals. So he's finding decent spots to shoot from, which is something you would want from an attacking player, but he's not elite in that category. You look at shot creating actions, which is exactly what it sounds like. He's in the 52nd percentile. Again, this is among fullbacks, not among all players. He's good, but not a great creative force as a fullback. And if you're talking about moving from fullback to the wing, you have to be an elite playmaking defender for that to even start to make sense. So it's weird. And again, Jordan, it feels like it should work. But then when you see Dest and, and kind of the, the minutia of his skill set, you realize like he just doesn't make a ton of sense as a winger against a good team because he doesn't do the stuff that elite wingers do. He's not going to blow by you for pace every time. He's not going to drop a shoulder and get to the end line and cut the ball back. He's much more of an East-West player than he is a North-South player. And I think at this point, so many of the world's best wingers 
are direct, they're quick, they're decisive, and, and Serginho Dest is just not those things. Yeah, I, I would agree with with a, a good chunk of that, Joe. I think when you think of him for the United States, you do think of him as like, oh, that, that goal he scored, that when he cuts inside and gets that shot off, or when he yeah. play, played that ball through the middle, those are all good. Those are all involved with him either uh, getting involved in the attack or moving centrally. But the majority of the time, those are when he's arrived a little bit late. And so that he is then able to adapt to the situation or sort of adjust what he's doing based on how the defense is set up. When you're asking him to do that as a primary attacking option, that's where I think he is less adept. I think you're absolutely right. I don't back him to get to the end line and put in good crosses. I think of him more as sort of trying to stand people up and beat them. And I'm not sure that is the best aspect of his game. So I do think as a fullback who then gets involved in the attack or gets involved in the attack fairly quickly, I think that gives him more variety in how he wants to play. And I think it suits him better. I also think Ryan sort of uh, very subtly answered this question himself when he phrased the question is why not change up the position he's been training in since he was a child. I I think Ryan is correct in that one as well, that my assumption is that his career circumstances have sort of put him into this position. Position. That at Ajax, yes, uh, young Ajax, he plays as a winger, but primarily he's uh, utilized as a fullback, a very attacking fullback, because with Ajax in the Dutch league, they don't really have to do a ton of defending or not nearly as much defending as as he might with a lower uh, table team. So he is always going to be a much more attacking option there. Uh, and then when he gets that move to Barca, it's sort of a similar thing. I think of Barcelona fullbacks as being uh, like very strong attackers who can also somewhat defend. And and I do think some of it was a bad situation. It felt like it just didn't click with him and Xavi when Xavi comes in. When Kuman is there, it felt like it was a little bit better or was maybe going to develop that much more or maybe he would get some more diversified training and, and sort of add new skills to his game. But then it doesn't work out at Barcelona. It doesn't have the consistency at Milan. And now he's with PSV, another team that you would expect to, in the Dutch league, be very attacking. And so I just think it's a thing he hasn't really been required to learn. He hasn't really had to change his game. And at this point, I don't know who is bringing in Serginho Dest to basically spend a year training him to be an out-and-out defender who can also then attack. It always makes me go back to... Before he moves to Barcelona, when it seems like he is very, very, very likely to go to Bayern Munich, I always think that's a a very interesting what if in his career. If you had Bayern Munich with Alfonso Davies on one side and Serginho Dest on the other, I think he'd be playing a similar role. I think he would have gotten more playing time and more consistency. That said, Bayern have had a ton of change and, and plenty of managers in that window. So who knows how much it would have actually impacted him. But I think his career circumstances are a big part of it as well. All right. Very comprehensively answered, gentlemen. Thank you very much, Jordan, for the question there. Let's go to a question from John Hufstetler, who mm-hmm. says, which countries are surprising soccer powerhouses because of the coaches they produce? Taylor, I'm going to kick this one off with uh, one that will please the other co-host yep. on this show. Right? Right? It's them, isn't it? It's Scotland. It so obviously... Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Matt Busby, Jock Steen, Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> oh, I've just hit a coat hanger. Bill Shankly, George Graham. You know, they... they Outkick their coverage, if that's the US uh, analogy to use, uh, in terms of managerial power. I agree with that. Uh, I I had it as that one guy who managed that one red team in Merseyside in the 80s, because I'm trying to avoid giving credit where it's due. Uh, But yes, uh, him aside, uh, I think you ran through all of them. Walter Smith I throw in there. You threw in Sir Matt Busby, right? Yeah. 
Yep. So I, I think when you look at Scotland of like those generations, for sure, more recently, I do think it's dipped. And I think a lot of that has to do with there not being as much of a like unifying philosophy or identifiable style coming out of Scotland. So like right now, is David Moyes the biggest manager in Scotland, like Scottish manager? I feel like that's a yes, or at least managing outside of Scotland. Uh, and then you could look at maybe managers who've had influence moving from the Scottish League, like Ange Postacoglu, but I don't know if that really qualifies. So I think I would still put Scotland in there. In terms of the other candidates, I, I think most of them, or all of them in my mind, are countries that are maybe powerhouses for the players they produce, but then also could be powerhouses for the managers they produce. I struggle to think of a country that isn't as adept at player development, but still has really good coaching. So I don't know if either of you has nominations on that front before we talk about some other potential candidates. Joe, did you find anybody? Yeah, I don't have a lot of great answers to this question. Mm -hmm. Scotland is the one in bold at the top of my notes for reasons that have already been stated. But Taylor, you're right, much less so in recent times, right? So the ones that I tend to think of as being powerhouses on the coaching side kind of do coincide with players. A couple of like answers that are, are still decent soccer countries, and, and one of which is is really been quite good in recent years on the international men's side. Croatia has a couple of managers in top five leagues right now. Ivan Juric, coaching Torino in Serie A, and Niko Kovac, former Bayern Munich manager, now coaching Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. I didn't expect to see that because, to be honest, there aren't a lot of countries outside of the ones you would expect. France, Germany, Italy, Spain, England, who have at least two managers in those leagues. The other one that caught me a little bit off guard is Denmark. Thomas Frank, of course, coaching Brentford, yeah. and Bo Svensson, coaching Mainz in the Bundesliga. Those two I thought were interesting. There are other nations that have two. Wales has two in the Premier League. Some smaller countries. But again, I don't know that any of those actually crossed the line mm -hmm. into being anything really close to a powerhouse. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, you could go like because a, a lot of them, I think you can start to put in that category. But then you look at managers and where they are now. So like with Croatia, for example, I had that thought too, Joe. And I think oh, Slavon Bilic has had a ton of success. And I, I don't even I think Al Fatah is where he is right now. It, not maybe yeah. as, as strong as he was a few years ago. Uh, so I, I think you're right. It sort of becomes a a more randomized grouping on the women's side. I think Denmark uh, could be maybe a nominee. I think there's a, there's a few countries that you could say, if you're looking, if you're looking at the men's and the women's sides combined are especially good when it comes to coaching, the Netherlands would be one of those. I, I think they're one of only three countries uh, to have had, three managers at uh, three Dutch managers, basically at the last women's world cup. Uh, but then I think they also had one or two at the men's world cup in 2022, Louis van Hall, obviously, but Eric Ten Hag is, is a Dutch manager of, of some repute. And I think you, it's, it, a lot of that connects to the Dutch domestic league and how strong Feyenoord PSV IX tend to be. So you get the philosophies of those, of those clubs, sort of when you have coaches steeped in them, then they're going to move on and you're going to have those kind of networks formed. So I think of the Netherlands as being another one that produces plenty of players, but also plenty of good managers. And then if we're going in that direction, the, the obvious answer to me is Argentina. That, again, plenty of talented players, they're a powerhouse in their own right on that front. But in terms of managers, uh, 2022 World Cup, oh, there we go. They're one of only three countries to have three managers at the Men's World Cup. Uh, Gustavo Alfaro of Ecuador, uh, Tata Martino of Mexico, Lionel Scaloni. Uh, and then when you think about all of the many, many, many Marcelo Bielsa disciples who are managing 
like, like basically in every country in the world, I feel like you can find a Bielsa disciple coaching somewhere. But even Lionel Scaloni is a disciple of Jorge Sampaoli, who himself is a follower of Marcelo Bielsa. So you get sort of like, I guess, grand disciples or something like that. But I think Argentina have coaches all over the world, a lot of them influenced by Bielsa, not all of them, but a lot of them. And I think of Argentina as a place where you're getting coaches in certainly every confederation. And then I, re- I really do think in most countries, you're getting an Argentine manager who has uh, had some success. Now I'm thinking of um, disciples-in-law and disciples once removed and the, yes, uh, exactly. the, <laughs> the strata there. I, I'm, I'm not actually sure, Taylor, that there is a satisfactory answer to John's question. I though, agree. Because um, we mentioned Scotland off the bat, and I don't... With all due respect, they're not a powerhouse, as, as exactly. Joe mentioned. And the other no- notions that we've mentioned, the De- Denmark, Croatia, all valid because of the coaches they produce, but also the players. It's about the players, really, isn't yeah. it, as well, to, mm-hmm. to a large extent. I mean, so- which is like like part and parcel, right? If you have very good coaches, if you have very good coaches and very bad players, like that, then how are they very good coaches? Like It, it, it <laughs> sort of becomes a conundrum right there. I think you have to have one to have the other and vice versa. Ah, the coaching player paradox. We've just opened it up. Mm-hmm. There it is. All right. Uh, John, thank you very much for that question. We go now to one from Anita who says, will we ever see another Jorge Campos, a keeper-striker combo? Just think how cool it would be to see a keeper wearing the number nine jersey and a colourful neon shirt with a mullet taking the playing out the back uh, uh, essence to the most extreme, then subbing another keeper in so he can go play up top. Uh, Joe, um, you may this may have been before your time, but this was a thing that yeah. happened with Campos. Jo- I know you're going to Joe. I have to say, for people who aren't familiar with Jorge Campos, or if you like me have forgotten how fun he was, just go watch some highlights, and it really does remind you of how fun soccer can be. He also, I believe saved humanity from the demons in the great Nike commercial that ends with Eric Cantona killing, I believe, the devil. I think Jorge Campos starts the the sort of move against when they're getting beaten up. It's Jorge Campos who makes a save and away they go. So Campos saved humanity, but also will save your day if you're having a rough one and you need to smile while watching some soccer. Go watch some of his highlights. Taylor, that commercial, we have to, I have to pick you up on that. Is that where Cantona puts a ball through the devil's stomach that like is correct, straight yes. through him mm-hmm. bad penalty bad shot it was straight it really is right it's right at him <laughs> yeah. i mean I, yeah I, I think that's a that's a valid point right yeah. i never really thought about it like that <laughs> au revoir i'm gonna blast this ball straight at you instead of to your side <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, Joe, uh, Campos was a lot of fun. And he, as, as the question suggests, he used to quite regularly come out of goal, have sure. another goalkeeper come in, and he got top for I, like the second half. I'm sorry. I'm still obsessed with this. Does that mean Eric Cantona has like divine striking ability? Like, is it a blessed soccer ball that once he kicks it, does it mean that even if it goes right at a demon, it will go right through them? Like, there is an implication there that uh, Eric Cantona is an, uh, anointed by a deity, is what I'm taking away from that commercial. Uh, I'm glad we've had this conversation in relation to Jorge Campos. Joe, I'll stop interrupting you now. And <laughs> no, I, I wanted to see how many times we could keep that streak going. Um, so I was going to let it ride. Uh, be quiet for a second. I've got there some more go. thoughts. Yeah, there go. it is. There it is. Um, no, the answer to this question is no. We're not going to see this again. Yeah. I I think it would be awesome, and I do hesitate to say never, right? Because there are some ridiculous athletes in sports. There's a genius statement that people really just love to hear from me on this show. Me breaking new ground there. I I think about. Uh, Shohei Otani, I don't know how much baseball you guys watch. I don't watch a ton of baseball at this point, but pitching at a high level and hitting at a high level for the Angels, it's just ridiculous. Like Baseball is already so hard. Doing one thing well in baseball is hard. Doing the most valuable thing in baseball and then also hitting really well at the same time is like some Bugs Bunny stuff right there, to be honest. So I, I, I think it is possible, but I would hedge very hard towards no 
we're not going to see this ever again. It's just so hard to be good at, at one of these things of stopping shots, of being a goalkeeper, or scoring goals. It's it's so difficult to do that, to do one of those things. It is exponentially more difficult to do both of those things at a high level. And Jorge Campos, not a not a legend necessarily at either one of his jobs. I think soccer maybe doesn't have a lot of room left yep. at a high level for players like that. I feel like this is a, a a thing of the 90s, a thing of a bygone era, even though I would pay real money to see Erling Holland do this for 90 minutes. <laughs> and, and it feels weird to say that, right, Joe? Or maybe for me it did because it feels like every generation has been like, nope, like it was possible in the last one because they didn't have as much discipline or they didn't have as many like tactical instructions so they could get away with it. And that th- it feels like you're setting yourself up to be obviously incorrect. But in this case, I think about how often I would see him, even in those like highlight compilations of him catching a cross or catching a corner and then sort of sprinting away from the accumulated masses of players, rolling the ball to himself and going on a 70 yard dribble to like launch a counterattack. And I think about the way the modern game is with how much you want to build out of the back, but you do so through like dedicated patterns and practice patterns of play. And I don't think many managers would, would be okay with him just carrying it forward 70 yards to find a pass and then potentially leaving your team exposed. I think it creates more chaos, potentially in a good way, but also for teams that want to control the game, control possession, control where the ball is and how you lose it. And if you're going to lose it, where you lose it, when you lose it. I think that's just too much variability, which is a shame. But 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 I agree with you largely. I don't think we will see something like that. Maybe we'll see a goalkeeper get to take free kicks here and there when they're up like 2-0 sure. and they can afford it. But for the most part, I think it is a product of a bygone era, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there are little bits and pieces of this that we do see free kicks is a, is a fun mm-hmm. example, Taylor. Penalties at the Women's World Cup. We saw some goalkeepers take earlier than they had to. So there's a little, little, but those are in just shootouts, a taste. right? Yeah. In shootouts, right? In shootouts. I, I do think your point, Taylor, about each generation thinks that, that maybe they're the one that has figured it out. Uh, when it comes to sports and, and maybe other parts of life, too, I, I feel like at least when it comes to sports science and and data and analytics, we can say pretty confidently that we are better at it now than we used to be. Like mm-hmm. I think about uh, e- even sports science in terms of players fitness and health and how much they're running. We went from like, oh, smoking and drinking like right around game time is fine to like, <laughs> right. well, maybe we shouldn't do or that time. Yeah, like that's that's the yeah, we'll just do it at <laughs> halftime and then we phase it out completely. And now we've gone from like oh, let's not smoke and drink during the game to actually having data on how yeah. much players should run. Like no we have up. we have ascended, truly. Like we have improved on what we used to have. And unfortunately, even though there's a lot of good that comes with those improvements, it, it probably means no more Jorge Campos is in the world. I, I think the potential for a Jorge Campos to happen is there. And the defense calls to the witness stand Manuel Neuer, who yeah. uh, we hear often in training will go up top and is really, really good at it. I um, do not believe that. I, I absolutely do not believe. You always hear like Manuel Neuer in midfield and, and whatever. Do we? Do any of us really think Manuel Neuer is good enough to be a high-level all- outfield player? Isn't a huge amount of it? Yeah, isn't a huge amount of it that like Pep once said he was good enough to play in midfield and like thought about trying to play him. And we don't believe anything that Pep said. No, but that was also like in a DFB Pokal game against like a third division team. So I'm not sure how how realistic that one was. But like Ryan, to your point, whenever in those Campos highlight videos, when it was the striker 
like gets a breakaway at midfield and they take a heavy touch. Those are my favorites because you know, like, oh, he took that touch 30 yards ahead of him. Campos is going to come flying in and put in a sliding challenge when you don't expect it. And that is a Manuel Neuer thing. I definitely agree with you that he'll come off his line readily on those breakaways. I just think about Campos then dribbling 60 yards forward and trying to find passes or taking shots or whatever. That feels less likely. The The outlier maybe would be, I think it was Hamburg, like, I want to say a few seasons ago, which probably means it was 10 years ago um, when they went with that, like their their sort of crazy attacking shape where they had the goalkeeper as like the center center back in possession, 40 yards from his own goal. Like maybe that's the the modern version of it is a, a, a sweeper keeper, very good with their feet, who is almost utilized as an outfield player uh, so that you can have more players and more possession further up the pitch. But even there, I think that's from a more defensive positioning than it is them moving into a midfield or attacking spot. Yeah. Uh, A few examples of uh, keeper outfield fun since the Campos era. Uh, The most famous Premier League example is David James at Manchester City. In 2005, he was brought on as a striker in a game near the end of the season where Man City were trying to qualify for Europe. Uh, He replaced Claudio Reyna when he came on uh, (laughs) for Manchester City. Uh, (laughs) Man City had a £5 million striker called John Macken on the bench. Stuart Pearce, the manager at the time, called up David James instead. And... And just for to establish, what was Stuart Pierce's nickname, Ryan? Do you recall? It was, uh, it might be Psycho. And there it it is. might have been uh, because he made some uh, bold decisions in his so, time on and off So field. Psycho brought on a goalkeeper. Got yeah. it, got it, got it. Just yeah. want to make sure that's where we are. And it didn't go great. Uh, but that was a good example of, you know, uh, it, it being bold enough for that to happen. I've also found an example from China, China, uh, in 2019, a team called Renhei. Uh, they actually played three goalkeepers on the field at the same time. They had Mu Pengfei, who was a goalkeeper in goal. They brought on two goalkeepers as strikers in the second half. One of them played the entire second half. One of them played for the last 10 minutes. So three registered goalkeepers in their, in their matchday squad all came on at the same time. Uh, they didn't, the, the, the goalkeepers who came on and went up top didn't score, but Renhe didn't concede either. <laughs> if... Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan, I love that. Your examples are great. And I didn't have either of those in my notes. So props oh, no? to you. Um, do we <laughs> do we think maybe like that game should be investigated for match fixing? Because I I think that might be like something worth doing with three goalkeepers on the field for one team. Just a thought. Lawyers, prevent me from yeah. making further comment. Yes, uh, maybe. I will make the comment that we now have confirmation that Ryan is indeed uh, German influence because when he counted to three, he did so uh, a la Inglorious Bastards with, with the three the way... Yeah, the the Germans do it, so you wouldn't get caught as a spy. That's good to know. Uh, The other candidate for this one, I think probably from around roughly the same era, maybe a little bit later, would be Jose Luis Chilever of uh, Paraguay, was the goalkeeper who would regularly slash always take their free kicks, had a great free kick. And I remember him being very good in person or like uh, as an actual player. But then I remember hating playing him in FIFA in the video game because I swear the game would glitch and never let you score off of him like missing a free kick he would either score directly or put it out for a goal kick you never got to save it and then launch a counter-attack and so that that looms large in my head as he would always score or hit it off frame one or the other uh in the video game in real life scored some goals himself uh but was definitely a more attack-minded uh goalkeeper who took set pieces that's one i wouldn't mind is seeing a goalkeeper take a free kick from like 35 yards out let's make that happen every now and then let's make it mandatory that's what i say 
I mean, I think Graham nailed it, that if we want to go the route of uh, the person who's fouled should have to take the penalty, a different version of that should just be the goalkeeper has to take the penalty every single time. And so if it's if they score, then they get a goal. And if they don't score, then you've created chaos because they better hustle back real quick. Uh, I I like that sort of uh, chaotic, um, like forced change to the game to just create a little more uncertainty. Let's do that. Indeed. All right, Anita, thank you very much for that question. We go to a break now. When we come back, we're talking Champions League and we're talking U.S. Academies. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the 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 uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Here's <laughs> one from Eric Janssen, who says, in the new Champions League format, teams will have games against others in their own pot. For a pot four team like Celtic in this year's competition, that would mean adding games against teams like Antwerp and Young Boys. This will mean four to six extra points for some of the pot four teams. Eyebrow raises. On the other hand, a pot one team like Sevilla may get zero extra points from their two additional pot one games could this help some of the smaller teams get into the knockout round by getting a couple of easier games so joe we had a bit of a discussion about this off air and it it has the potential to break your brain this one and maybe we should probably start (laughs) off by explaining the new champions league format if listener missed the big thing where we went in depth on it last week yeah i'll do that part because this question has broken my brain a little bit i thought i had it figured out and then in the pre-show chat i thought maybe i don't have it figured out and now i'm just spiraling downwards so i'll go to something i do know which is the format ryan you said it. we talked about it on the big thing recently you graham and myself but instead of the group stage with 32 teams that then whittles down by half and goes into the round of 16 and so on which is the current uefa champions league format starting next year they're going to something called the swiss system which is taken from chess The idea is it's one big table, but Graham would quibble with that because not everybody's playing everyone. So it is sort of more of a league, but it's still not quite a Champions League. Every team of that 36-team table is going to play eight games. After that, the top eight teams, based off of total points from their eight games, get a bye. And the next 16 teams under the top eight go and do a little round of 16 of their own. 
and then you get down to eight teams in that little round of 16, and they play the actual top eight teams from the original table, and then the Champions League resumes as normal. It is a way to get more games. It is a way maybe to make the competition more entertaining. The jury's still out on whether or not that will be accomplished. But I think I've set out what the new Champions League is. Big table, eight games each. There are more intricacies here on the pots that, Ryan, maybe you or Taylor can dive into. But that's the general idea. Yeah. So, Taylor, Eric's point here, I suppose, is you've got teams who are in pot one mm-hmm. playing each other. That hasn't happened before in the Champions League. So there's potential for those big teams, when facing one another, to take points off one another or even mm-hmm. get some draws. So there's fewer points for the pot one teams. That in turn, creates an opportunity for the pot four teams, if, say, Celtic, go on a run and get a good set of results. Well, they'll have to play pot one teams as well. But the point being, the pot one teams playing one another, they could cancel each other out a little bit. Well, I'm I'm a little confused either by the question or the format or both. But it feels like Eric's question is implying that like pot one teams are only playing pot one teams. And it doesn't sound like they're playing more pot one teams. It sounds like maybe they have to play one or two pot one teams but they're also playing other like lower pot teams yeah, so, so it so feels like good teams are playing some good teams but also some medium teams and some bad teams some bad teams are playing some good teams some medium teams and some bad teams it yeah. feels like it's kind of the same thing no just like it, is, it is balanced right or, or at least somewhat balanced because not every pot one team's created equal like you'd rather draw Sevilla than you would Man City, to, to state the obvious. Mm-hmm. So it's not balanced, but four yeah, pots, no, yeah, four yeah, pots yeah. just like it is now. No, no, and to dive, into the, to dive into the details, everybody will play two teams from each pot. So if you're a pot one team, you'll play two teams from pot one, pot two, pot three, pot four, if you're, you get the idea, right? Everybody is playing two teams from each pot. You add that together, ding, 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 you get to eight games. This is the part that I, I don't quite jive with maybe Eric, with, with maybe where Eric is coming from. It's it's supposed to be balanced, right? So theoretically, you're still going to have the best teams advance. Yes, there will be some upsets, and yes, there is some advantage. I suppose that the the lower quality teams have that they can beat up on each other, and maybe there'll be like a striation in pot four where the top half of the pot four teams are really really good compared to the other ones, and they'll pick up points. Or maybe you don't. Ex- I don't know. I I just feel like it's going to end up balanced, and most of the good teams are going to end up going through anyway. But sh- surely, surely the point he's making is. Pot 1 teams only played Pot 2, 3, and 4 in the current format. Now they'll also have to play their own pot, which means there's a potential for them to have a lower point hole because they'll have a more difficult schedule than they would have had previously. I think I think that's right. I think there is some truth to that. I guess my counterpoint to that would be, and we talked about this on the big thing, because there are now two more games, so six games in the current group stage format, eight games in what essentially is the replacement for the group stage in this new format that'll start next year, because there are extra games, for the best of the best teams, even if they do a whoopsie, even if they lose to a pot four team that they shouldn't or whatever, right? Like they have two more games to climb out of whatever maybe little hole that they've dug for themselves. I think the extra games are going to generally benefit the higher quality teams anyway. So even if a team like Celtic, which is maybe not the best example, but I I, I get it for the purposes of Eric's questions. Even if Celtic pick up extra points off of the bad teams that they wouldn't have gotten to play before, I think the big teams are also going to have an inherent advantage of them just being better and having more time to prove that they're better. Mm. This is complicated. <laughs> Taylor, let, let, let's, let's just agree, Taylor, I this mean, is complicated. It is, it is but, but I think at the end of the day, it, it accomplishes what a lot of the format change is meant to accomplish. That now you have, because you have one potentially very good team playing another potentially very good team multiple times, 
those games now matter a little bit more because you want to be one of those eight seeded teams that doesn't have to go into the playoff. But but it means that those two playoffs, but it means that those two teams are, are going to be competing a little bit more. But it also means that the team that ends up losing still is going to be the seeded team uh, when you get to that knockout round. And you still have, what, three quarters of the teams making it uh, like out of the group or out of the league stage. So I think it's it's it accomplishes what it's meant to in that you get more meaningful games early, but you still get more teams going into a knockout round. So you still get that added drama. I think it accomplishes a lot of goals, uh, even if it is a little bit confusing and potentially unbalanced. Taylor, did you just Jim Mora yourself? Or did yes, I, I did. <laughs> did I yes, I did. <laughs> that's the best thing that's happened on this show in a long time. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think this question truly has confused me. Like I said, I thought mm-hmm. I had it figured out. And the more that I, I listen to you guys and the more I reread Eric's question, the more I think maybe there is something to it. But I just keep coming back to the fact that I think the big teams are still going to have that edge just because they're better and because they have a little bit more wiggle room now than they did before. But I'll admit, I, I am now a little more curious to see how this is going to play out than I was before we had this question and, and certainly even after we talked about it on the big thing. So I, I like yeah. that. Joe I, Lowry, Champions League curious. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I, I talked myself into Eric's point of view here, but then subsequently have realized that UEFA will do nothing to help the little guy. They always want to help the big team. So there must be, it, it must not be true. <laughs> they must be helping the big <laughs> There's got to be something we're missing. Yeah, there there's something we're missing here. There is. There must be. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for that question. Listen, let us, let us know what you think about that one as well. We're intrigued. And for more on the new Champions League format, please do go back in the feed and listen to last, uh, last Friday's Big Thing if you haven't already. One final question for this round from Guy Yedweb. Hello, Guy. Guy says... Here in New York City, I see kids walking around who are in international academies like Dortmund or Barcelona. Are these US satellite academies actually identifying US talent for their clubs in Europe? Or are they marketing? Are they just collecting extra cash for the old mothership? Uh, Joe, um, you have a Barcelona academy in Phoenix. There's one also here in Charlotte, North Carolina. These kind of things are increasingly common with European clubs setting up, ostensibly setting up their branding on a US domestic academy program. What's uh, what's the dealio here then? Before I answer that question, I should know this and I should have researched this. Ryan, do I have one in Phoenix or are you talking about the one in Casa Grande? Uh, is Casa Grande also Arizona? Yes. That's what I meant then. All right, cool. Because there is a difference, <laughs> right? And I'll, I'll get into that difference in okay. just a second. From my experience, 99% of these clubs, these youth academies are are cash grabs or marketing vessels or whatever you want to think of them as. Barcelona is a great example, and I'm glad Guy mentions it, and Ryan, I'm glad you mentioned it too. They have academies in a bunch of different spots in the US, one in the Carolinas, there's several, but they're not churning out pro players. Like They're just not. They're charging fees for a season. Players come in, a lot of suburbs, stuff like that. Players come in, they make money from the fees and oftentimes get quite well off in this process. And big clubs can use all their players, essentially, as billboards, just walking, talking billboards, which is a pretty effective marketing strategy. So they are marketing. What I will say is the reason I say 99% are cash grabs is because I think there are at least one, if not maybe a, a couple in the United States, but there's only one that I really know of that is a legitimate pathway for professional players, that, that one is the one in Arizona. It's the one in Casa Grande, the Barca yes. Residency Academy. So players come in and they live here. That's why it's called a residency academy. They live here for the school year. There's school on site. All of their, their needs are basically taken care of for them. 
and they focus on soccer. They go into to town basically and shop and do whatever, and then they come back, and it's like this desert oasis. I wrote a piece about it for The Athletic a few years ago. Diego Luna, Juliana Rajo, Matthew Hoppe, Caden Clark. Uh, shoot, there's a bunch of other players that I'm not thinking of that have gone to this academy and have done quite well for themselves as high-level players. They take themselves seriously. Like, they, they can beat even some of the best MLS academies in games and have done so in the past as well. It is a very, very strong program. That said, even the Barca Residency Academy, the one that I think is doing a good job, they are also a cash grab and a bit of a marketing gimmick. So I'll, I'll get to the meat as quickly as I can. There's basically two different academies, like within the academy. One is called, at least internally, the pre-academy teams. And they charge you know a lot of money for players to come and stay because it is an expensive operation. They're also getting some money off of that. And then there are the actual legit academy players, the top level talents, and the best of the best players. And I would wager almost everybody on the real academy teams, they are there on scholarship. Like the best of the best, Julian Araujo was not paying to go to this academy, right? The, the elite players, Diego Luna, they are there on scholarship and they are going to play professional soccer. So there is that distinction. But again, 99% of these clubs, from, from what I know, and Taylor, I'm curious to hear from you, mm. are marketing and money makers. I'm glad Joe went first because I think Joe was was even stronger in this one than I would have been. Uh, from talking to some people, from reading some different articles, it feels like yeah, largely Joe's answer is correct, uh, and and I would say pretty much entirely Joe's answer is correct. It, it feels to me like these are situations that if they discover a player, it is anecdotal or coincidental rather right. than intentional. So. A not to spotlight one, but to spotlight one. Uh, there's an ESPN article from a couple of years ago about Villarreal and Villarreal have an academy in Northern Virginia that is pretty expansive, uh, that has done a good amount for developing players in the area and, and kind of modernizing or bringing new ideas to coaching, new styles to coaching. And I think for a lot of parents and players, that appeals. If you are playing in a local league where you are a bigger and faster kid at 10 years old, the tendency is to put you either as a defender and then no one can get by you or more likely to put you as a striker and you're going to score a bunch of goals because you're bigger and faster but you're not going to really develop much as a player so that when everybody kind of catches up to you in size and speed you are now behind the pack and so i think some players have seen these academies as an opportunity to go and basically be developed in a different way do different training and that's very much a positive but you have thousands of kids trying to make these academies and then once they do or if they do they're paying a lot of money to do so and then maybe a few of them get invited over to train for a week or two weeks but even there it feels sort of like sometimes that is just a glorified tour of the stadium tour of the training facility you get to watch a game you kick a ball for half an afternoon and now you're going home and you can say that you went to the VRL academy for a week um it doesn't feel like there's a ton of like, okay, we've developed this right back who's very, very good. We're going to send him to the academy and see how he functions. I think even if players do end up getting to play in the academy, it is then sort of a restart of like, okay, we don't know what you've done before. So now you've got to go through everything again. And we'll see where you are, like status-wise, ability-wise. So I don't really think it really sets you up to to make that jump to kind of go straight into VRL's academy and then their senior team. A key line that I thought uh, was interesting from that ESPN article Villarreal, Virginia, consists of a contract between Amato, the, the managing director, a former Tottenham Hotspur youth player, and the Spanish club. Like the other local operators, Amato pays a fee to use Villarreal's name and logo to attract players. He is permitted to outfit his team in replica versions of Villarreal's jerseys. He charges a fee of around $2,000 per player. 
that might seem steep. That is cheap compared to PSG, rumored to be between sixty and eighty thousand dollars a year for their residency program in Florida. And I think all that to say, if you want to, if you have money to burn, basically, and you want your your kid to develop new skill sets or to kind of get to experience a different style of training than they might otherwise get. I see positives, but I think it's very much a case by case basis. You've got to evaluate and see what they're offering. And I think honestly, be pretty intense in your questioning because I think you're going to hear like, oh no, there's plenty of opportunity they, they could play. And at the very least, they're going to, you know, get to experience the best there is in club culture in the United States. And I think you can get a very strong sales pitch, but you have to look at what you're, what you want out of it. And if it is just, I want them to be able to wear a Chelsea shirt and say, hey, my kid played for a Chelsea Academy in the United States. Great. But if you want them to have a su- successful soccer career, I'm genuinely not sure that this is the way to do it. I'm honestly not sure what the way to do it is. This question has made me sort of feel very confused about the state of youth soccer even more than I already was. But I, I would say, for the most part, these are money and branding exercises rather than they are for player identification and talent development. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Uh, I don't think Javi's got a a red phone that lights up on his desk yeah. going, we got, we got a nine-year-old in Charlotte. Here we go. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, dude, it's sorry, quite a, that's, it's, th- that really is it for me. Like, sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you've just nailed it. That like, it really is about, even if you're so good in the Charlotte Barca Academy or whatever it is, you're then having to go to a place. If you get the rare opportunity to then go train there, it's still very much, you are a player coming in against, kids that have been there that are from there that are steeped in the local traditions that have been in La Masia for years already and they have like 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 rooted development that coaches have put hours in and you're just automatically going to be behind a little bit it makes me think that the way to do it is to find the best local club you can find within maybe an hour's drive and and focus on youth development at the local level and and sort of developing skills, not just winning games, not just winning tournaments, but developing an overall player pool and and in that club and, and then sort of seeing what happens as you get a little bit older and seeing what other opportunities there are. But I think eight and nine year olds playing in academies to, that cost a ton of money, that feels very very ridiculous to me when Xavi yeah is probably not sitting there being like we need that nine-year-old <laughs> it's gonna make the difference for Barca next season and it's it's uh it's, it's important to note it's not just these big teams who are doing very expensive mm-hmm. pay-to-play systems I've got opinions about that we can discuss at another time but Taylor it does actually feel quite cynical of these mm-hmm. European clubs to what they've done as you've said it's it is that the parents thinking oh my, my kids can go mm-hmm. and is in the Barcelona part, pipeline now whereas essentially it could one would argue, one could argue that it is just a branding and a reskinning yeah. of, a, of a current academy. As I understand it, there was one in Texas. That I don't think that affiliation exists anymore, but that's the one where they basically just had an agreement with Chelsea that they would wear Chelsea shirts and they would be rebranded as like, I think it was like FC Solaire or something like that. And they were became like FC Chelsea Solaire. And, and it was just a, you can basically wear our kits, say you're affiliated with us. Maybe we'll send a scout over here and there. But, and I think the VRL one, they did have VRL youth coaches come over periodically, but it, it was not a really like, they're bringing their scouts over. They're establishing a youth club here with their youth coaches, and they're going to run it the way the VRL Academy in VRL is run. It is very much a, uh, like, tertiary connection at best is is how I would put it. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for that question, Guy. By the way, Joe Lowry called me out for, for saying the Barcelona Academy was in Phoenix. I've just pulled up a map, Joe. Casa Grande. I'm going to call that the Phoenix metro area. It's like 40 miles no. out from the center. No. Come on. Come on. I give know. me that. Hold Sorry. On. Well, I feel like you. you won't you won't extend that same courtesy to London, will you? Or, or, or yeah. are you the one who famously <laughs> says that all of England is London? I forget. 
Now, everything above London's meaningless, but London's quite big. Yeah, but like, is uh, is Watford London? Mm, Watford uh, see, is, see, see, here we go. <laughs> I think in, in the scale of the, the state of Arizona, Joe, you should have given me Phoenix there. That's mm. all I'm saying. Joe, do you no, notice how you didn't answer I, my question? I, I did notice that. I also won't give it to you, but I will say the population of Casa Grande as of 2021 is just over 57,000 people. Um, so you learn something every day, don't you? Dude, so sure. many people coming out of the woodwork to talk about how much they, they love Googling populations. I, mm. I don't I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what's wrong with our listener base. But, Joe, you and Goss nothing, are not alone nothing. in your fascination with populations. Uh, well, Casa Grande getting grandier by the day, evidently, Joe. Thank you very much for that uh, bit of information. Listeners, thank you very much for submitting your questions. Totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you'd like to do the same thing. But for now, we have listener question for another week. Joe Lowry. Thank you very much, you uh, pedantic geographer. Thank you, Ryan. (laughs) Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your answers to these cues. Uh, Thank you, my friend. And listener, thank you, mostest of all list. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.